and we're back, and we're finally going to cover on Human Nature by Roger Squidward with Bo Carl's Behemoth. Bo, how you doing? I'm doing well. Just uh, smoking while it's raining outside, which is beautiful. always, you know, very beautiful, very good. Drinking uh, some wine. You're drinking wine. You're smoking. It's raining outside. We're talking philosophy. Are you, are you a Frenchman or are you not? Well, I'm very Mediterranean. I'll put it that <laughs> much. Southern French. I'll say that. <laughs> Um, and we went live. Back. We're not live. We started recording because we we're having a great conversation beforehand. And I was kind of like, yeah, we should probably hit record on this one, you know? Yep. <laughs> so we actually talk about this. Um, yeah, I was, we were talking about um, this is a book from Walter Screw, and this is actually the first time covering Screw on a podcast. So that's going to be uh, hopefully this goes well, and I think I can kind of grasp the Screw and stuff here, and it's an enjoyable conversation. I would we've love done to him indirectly. Yeah, we've done him indirectly before because uh, yes. I wrote an article on one of his books summarizing a few points that I thought were very important to grasp, uh, which were not necessarily Thomistic or scholastic or even Catholic points, but uh, which certainly have share a lot of correlation and I think are mostly correct in their intuition and where yeah. they're aiming at. Yeah. Um, I guess this is, uh, I've, I've, I think I've finished two scooting books at the same time I was, um, was on human nature on soul and soul of the world. And both times I was reading a phase of book. It was these are, um, Philosophy of the Mind or uh, The Last Two Persistent. And uh, I got to say, that there's a weird, like, comp- uh, a complementary nature to both those books, which you read. Like, so if you read Soul of the World with Philosophy of Mind, or if you read um, Human Nature with, like, um, uh, uh, Last Two Persistent, there's, like, there's, mm-hmm. a weird, there's a weird, like, phaser and screw and complement each other in a nice way. I think phases is correct more often, but screw is off more, a lot of more beautiful in his way he writes, I guess. So, yeah. Is, is, would you say he's a Kantian or would you say he's not really a Kantian? He's, he's he's not a Kantian, but he does say, he has said this explicitly, I forget in which book or which lecture, that he has explicitly said that his two biggest influences are Kant and Wittgenstein. Maybe it wasn't sexual desire, I forget, but he's very explicit that his two main influences are Kant and Wittgenstein. Now, he referenced Wittgenstein a few times in this book, and I got to say, I know nothing about Wittgenstein besides his, that's his name. He's not someone who pops up, pops up in our circles often enough. Uh, what do you know anything about, about, about Wittgenstein? Yeah, I know a bit. I haven't read Wittgenstein directly. I've read a lot of <laughs> I've read a lot of screen summarizing Wittgenstein <laughs> over the years. <laughs> that's my that's mostly my interaction with Wittgenstein. I re- I've read some Anscombe, some Elizabeth Anscombe, and she was kind of his editor at the end of his life as well as his star pupil. And a Catholic philosopher, by the way, so you can read her and get a lot of uh, Wittgenstein, but with more Catholic, I suppose. Um, and so I know some Wittgenstein, not very much. I What I really know from him at kind of is the private language argument, which he employs in this book in a very truncated form. Uh, but it's very interesting stuff. Very, He's mostly a linguistic analyst is mm. mo- most what he's really famous for. I gotta say, this book is definitely one that was. Um, I I could be mistaken, but I think this is the first like strictly philosophical book I've covered on the podcast. Uh, we've done like political ones, we've done history ones, we've done like Zuckerman Thomas Three Reformers is you know more of a I don't know if I would call it strict philosophy or history, but this seems this seems much more like a strict closer to a strict philosophy book to cover on the podcast. So this is gonna be a a fun conversation. Yes, indeed. It's very much philosophical anthropology is what this book is. Uh, Last precision has bits of it. Philosophy of mind is a bit of philosophical anthropology. Um, but this isn't. This doesn't really just talk about philosophy of mind. It has other interests as well. Uh, but philosophy of mind features indirectly in it. It features indirectly in the IU encounter, which you asked me in DMs to, <laughs> to explain <laughs> in this yes. uh, recording. Yes, yeah, so, um, when we get to the IU account, I will have you explain that because that's something like um, it's just it was, uh, I there were very few points in school would make that I would think I would disagree with. There were a few that he made that I'm like I think I disagree there, but a lot of his points I'm kind of just like trying to understand because it's very outside my, you know, when Your I read philosophy. Yes, yeah, yeah. it's, it's outside. The, it's not the language I speak. You know, when I read philosophy, I'm always reading Catholic or Thomas stuff, and mm-hmm. so this is very just kind of like okay. I think I get what he's saying. I'm not positive. I try. I tried to finish the introduction to Kant book he wrote, um, and then you know I couldn't get through that one because I. I the moment I heard Kant, uh, he said um, he said 
Kant described marriage as a legal contract entailing the use of the other person's sexual organs. I'm like, I'm out. I'm done. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going past this one. That might have been, actually been an example of him saying where Kant was like, stupid. <laughs> I have an example of him like saying, like, look, he made mistakes too. Yeah. It's just like a very, it's like a very materialist, autistic kind of way of describing marriage. Yeah, um, it's a very, it's it's a very contractualist approach to human relations, which is very funny. Which is somebody who talks about in this book. It's kind of like he, um, he in the last chapter, we're going to jump, jump around a little bit, but it's fine. He um he describes the like um the individualist and the communitarian and like, I'm talking about morality the contractualist and the utilitarian yes. and um I I knew, I mean contractualist and morality I'm just thinking of you know both of us came from the anarchist circles mm-hmm. um all I could think of was how many times I remember I mean personally making arguments kind of in a, a consent based contractual uh ethic yes we're very familiar with that sort of thinking utilitarianism. You know, if there's an anarchist utilitarian, someone like David Friedman uh, would be an example of an anarchist utilitarian. Um, there's others, I'm sure. But so that's a little bit more familiar to, I suspect, both of us, at least. Yeah, I suspect it's familiar to both of us and those who have dabbled in those circles or other circles as well. Um, now, he, he brought up the categorical imperative. I know it's not super crucial to the conversation we're going to be having tonight. But do you know exactly what the categorical imperative is? And if so, can you explain it to the audience? I can certainly try. So off the top of my head, the categorical imperative is basically um, – how to put this? It's not a hypothetical imperative. So a hypothetical imperative would be something like uh, if you're thirsty, drink water. So there's an if there. Uh, there's a condition that must be first met before this task can be undertaken. But if you say um, you should never murder someone, there's no if. There's just you should never murder someone. And so the categorical imperative is an imperative of this type. Now, what Kant is trying to do is to justify such a rule and explicitly base his morality on such a rule. Now, he, if I remember correctly from my very brief readings of Kant, would be something like, this imperative is something that reason itself and us being reasonable beings, that is beings which possess reason or I'm not sure possess reason would be the word he used, but I'll use that for the sake of argument, that possess reason would be urged to comply with. And I forget the exact details of his argument, but he essentially makes the idea that if you want to see if something works as a universal law, then you must first see and the universal law would be a categorical imperative such as never murder someone would be try to see if everyone can follow it you can you must will that everyone follows this rule if this rules rule is not followable by everyone or if it if a society descends into anarchy and bad things happen then you don't then you should not will that this rule be followed so everyone should murder someone clearly cannot attain to the status of a categorical imperative, according to Kant. Uh, Phaser, uh, in The Last Precision, raises several objections to this sort of ethic. I forget which. I can try and find them later if you really want. But it's very, it's certainly an interesting perspective, and you can sort of see um, anarchist roots taking place there in the sense of a contractualist approach of non-aggression. You can sort of see the non-aggression principle as a kind of an extension of the categorical imperative in that sense. It is a rule that that reason impels us to follow that is followable by everyone and therefore ought to be followed by everyone because it guarantees a stable, secure, safe society um, according to anarchists. Now you may say, well, you first have to define society. Why is that good? And then you can, you know, you can bring in what is the final causality of a common polity um, is it to just be safe? Is it to be better? What is better? What is then you have to bring in the final causality of man? So there's objections you can make to this. And of course, Kant's argument is more intricate than what I presented here. But this yeah. is the basic of the categorical imperative as I understand it, at least. Okay. Thank you for answering that question because that was something I've, I kind of knew what it was. But I'm like, you know, just to be safe, I want to hear that because I want to – I'm just thinking about – I'm trying to read more Kant. And so if I can kind of get a – I just to something about him before I dive deep into reading him. Um, but I'm only, I'm only reading him to understand Scrutin and Hopper better. 
that's that's really it mm-hmm. and also all the anarchists on twitter but um i gotta say the opening of this, the beginning of the book he does seem to kind of deal with the the evolutionary biologist people who are trying to draw out a human nature to like a, a uh, evolutionary biology or a uh, evolutionary psycho- psychological lens like Jonathan Haidt, Brett Weinstein, um, Richard Dawkins, these kind of people, mm-hmm. you know, so for Gene. And all I could think of was the, uh, Alpha, what's his name? Um, Yuval Noah Harris's, not Sam Harris, Yuval something Harris's book, Noah Sapiens. Yeah, wow, yeah. Noah I, yeah, I do have not read Sapiens, I have been gifted it. Uh, so I have it here. I'm kind of somewhat tempted to read it every now and then. I want to cover it on a podcast because my, my atheist friend loves that book, so I know I'll hate it. Mm-hmm. And I think it'd be kind of fun to have to go through it and prep for it and kind of maybe have a podcast debunking it, you know? Well, not, I have not, no idea not what even the main it, piece is. Yeah, I don't even know what the main yeah, piece is. debunking, but it's, it's from my, I think it was a BizCat, uh, Bizantine Skiotis. Uh, he covered, he read it once. I talked yeah, to him about it. He kind of said it's just a very materialistic and kind of nihilistic explanation of like, you know, the function of this led to the function of this, led to the functions of this, led to this socialist, to this liberal hellscape. Yeah, it's a very, I think, again, just you can read it together with Phaser's uh, Last Precision. I think if I did read it, I would read it together with Phaser or look up the yeah. relevant parts because most of it is dealt with in Phaser, I would suspect, and yeah. wouldn't require a, a more complex argument. Because I'm sure there are like smart materialist philosophers or whatever that would require a more complex Aristotelian argument to sort of evade and mm-hmm. uh, to debunk properly. But I don't suspect Noah Harari as a you know a great <laughs> yeah. intellect that I should yeah. that I should contend with. Same. Um, I you know, I, I had a few quotes here from the book. I figure we're kind of just you know we, we maybe because again but the, the thing with this book is that it's um. When it comes to covering philosophy books, it's not like covering a political book where you kind of bring up ideals here and there. It's kind of like it's best to kind of just read the guys when it comes to philosophy, just read his stuff and then comment on that. Then it is to mm-hmm. kind of attempt to put it in your own words. So I'm mm-hmm. just gonna read some quotes off and we'll kind of talk about those quotes. And then you, if you have any quotes you want to read off, you can read them off and talk about those quotes. We'll just kind of walk our way down the uh, list of quotes here. Mm-hmm. Okay. I envisage evolutionary psychologists offering the following account of laughter. By laughing together at our thoughts, they might say we have come to accept them and that this makes cooperation with our perfect neighbors easier so that it neutralizes anger at our shared inadequacies. Hence, a community of laughing people have a competitive advantage over a community of the humorless. Now, I didn't copy, I didn't have this part to say, but he goes on later to say that um, this, uh, this attempt to uh, account for laughing uh, requires only knowing what laughing is. Like it's it simply is a looking at how we laugh and applying how we do it to other yes. animals. Other animals do it's, not laugh. It very, it's a very hilarious attempt because it sort of presupposes, and he does this with Nietzsche too. He points out how Nietzsche does this in genealogy of morals too. Um, it presupposes the very thing it's attempting to uh, demonstrate why it came about. In its demonstration yeah. of its origin, it's presupposing the very thing exists. So, for example. You can ask, okay, what, how or why does it presuppose that laughter already exists? Well, in that passage, it's saying the hypothetical evolutionary biologist is saying, well, you know, laughter uh, brings about good feelings and uh, soothes animosity. It's like, okay, and therefore it's a, you know, a trait. Uh, therefore, it's advantageous for a species to have it. Okay, then you're not really explaining what laughter is. You're just saying it's advantageous to have laughter. Yeah. To understand what laughter is, you have to understand what laughter is, not just say, okay, it came about for this. You're like, no, you can say, well, of course, species which can laugh, the human species, that is an evolutionary advantage. Okay, but that's almost a tautology under the (laughs) evolutionary paradigm that everything which survives is either, uh, what is it, the word, evolutionarily neutral or evolutionary advantageous, or if it is disadvantageous, it's offset by something else. Uh, so like someone who is handicapped is offset by the fact that he has a community of caretakers around him. And so altruism, uh, you know, is the, is a, a trait, an ad- evolutionarily advantage- advantageous trait, which allows more people to pass off more genes, populate you know, increase the population, so on, so so forth. Okay, but you're not really explaining what altruism is. You're just saying that it's 
um evolutionarily good okay yeah but that's all again that's basically a tautology here because the human species is alive therefore most if not all of its traits must be evolutionarily advantageous to some degree or to some time period you're not really explaining what that trait is yeah yeah this, this kind of gets into the whole how a lot of modern sciences only really account for like material causes i guess in uh in these evolutionary biology ones they kind of really only account for like functional causes and they don't really explain things outside of what they uh, I, don't, I don't think i copied it but he had the point where, like um if you try to explain the fun if you try if, uh evolution, evolution biologists would explain uh how uh what but uh, what wings are on a bird by explaining that uh, they need the wings they need, they, they need the wings to fly and that's the function of them and they wouldn't go any deeper than that <laughs> It's just like, well, what are, what are wings? Well, they need them to fly. It's like, well, what, what is it? They need them to fly. It's like, <laughs> it's like well, okay, but what does it do? <laughs> what does it do? How does it work? You're not really explaining yeah. how it works, even just the basic material things. Imagine something like laughter, which requires <laughs> intention towards other subjects, an object. Maybe it requires derision. There's different kinds of laughter. There's a smirk. There's, a, there's you know, laughing at a tragedy uh you know people laugh at funerals sometimes there's laughter at like rem reminiscing of old times there's different there's so many different kinds of laughters which require different explanations of why we call this laughter why this one mm -hmm. feature props up in so many different circumstances where you can't just say okay it's evolutionary advantageous okay but that doesn't really explain what it is or why yeah. it pops up in these circumstances you just said you just said okay. You basically just said said it exists. That's basically yeah. what you've said. You've you said laughter that, exists yeah. and it endured through the centuries, uh, because yeah, you've described maybe an additional characteristic of laughter: a that it is evolutionarily advantageous. You haven't described laughter itself. You've it's... described maybe an additional feature of it, if it even is evolutionarily advantageous. Maybe it's not. Yeah. Maybe the guy who made like silly jokes about everyone else was like killed early on, and like but somehow <laughs> they survived because they knew when to keep shut, and so passed their genes. I don't know. Like that could be the case. And maybe it was offset <laughs> by the other gene of you know self-preservation and knowing when to shut up. <laughs> on a point about laughing, like you know, quality intentionality. This reminds me of his point Larry brought up about Daniel Den De Daniel Dennett and um how his whole his account of intentionality. Um, which reminded me again of Ed Fader's uh, philosophy of mind, how they didn't have the whole like it's homunculus, um, <laughs> like all the way down. And I'm just like, I mean, I couldn't take, I can't take the word homunculus serious as watching, um, what's a full man aqueous brotherhood. I know it's like an actual thing people talk about, but the moment I hear homunculus, I'm like, where's uh, where's lust, <laughs> where's greed, where they at? <laughs> it's, um, but yeah, the, the um, again, the kind of like mental states, intentionality, qualia. It seems like the um, evolutionary biologists like all implicitly kind of have a materialist framework of the mind. That I don't, they don't know if they, like it's connected, but it definitely seems to be like an implicit understanding of how mental states uh, don't really need into that intentionality. Like we, we like we impart like wait the way he described Barry Dinn uh, described like intentionality is imparted on us to things like the um, like uh, what, what, how does Scrooge put it that a um, the AC controls have intentionality because they all can be turned. They can be they can uh, turn it up or turn it down. They intend to turn it up or turn it down. So the intentionality is departed from the user to the object. Kind of reminds me of how Ayn Rand's teleology doesn't exist, except when we import teleology to something that we create. Mm -hmm. so yeah, that's, that's a very funny explanation of intentional states because it very obviously doesn't hold up. <laughs> like just to like prima facie, it's like that's obviously not what's going on. Like I'm sorry, that's obviously not what's going on unless you're claiming an ac controller is sentient yeah like that's obviously not not what's going up in my not what's going on in my head nor is there any representation of a foreign object in the controller it's just effective causation by my press of a button it does this or that yeah. that's it you made this great point in a group chat about Danny dennett that um, he's better than the rest of the new atheists. Their arguments fall apart on page one. His fall apart on page three. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Though. <laughs> this is a fantastic. Yeah, that was fantastic. I loved it. Um, it's true though. He's the most philosophically educated 
of the yeah. new atheists, and he's still kind of a big retard. Yeah, which like, is endlessly a, amusing to me. There's a what's uh, Dawkins was like a, an evolutionary biologist. Sam Harris is a neuroscience neuroscientist. In big heavy quotes there. <laughs> big, yeah, big quotes, possible neuroscience. <laughs> possibly. Um, um, uh, Christopher Hitchens was just a uh, what was he? Is it a journalist? A journalist, yeah. Yeah, he was he was a plumicist. That's all he was. He had great rhetoric skills. Um, and then with the one actual philosopher in the bunch, and it's you know this retard. <laughs> it's this massive fucking retard, <laughs> which is so funny to me. Yeah. He's the one I know the least about, which is kind of um because that speaks to how the new atheists are so unphilosophical that one philosopher and the new four new atheists is the, least, is the least popular. He's kind of the least interesting one, though. I understand why, because at least like I don't know if you want to learn read about like basic biology, like Dawkins is like a f- decent writer, mm-hmm. and I guess the greatest show on earth, which I read many years ago. Is like a decent explanation of evolution, and it's kind of cool. Um, and it has this really funny bit where he's like, "By the way, we can totally breed a race of Ubermensch," like, <laughs> which is so funny because he's like, "I'm not saying we should. I just want to correct scientific idiots who say we can. Of course we can, you idiots. We can select for anything." And it's really funny where he goes like, "I'm not saying it's good, but I am saying, however, that it is possible." I know he went to Dawkins once had a tweet where he said, um, "People act people eugenics is eugenicists are obviously bad, but to act like it's not something we can do is stupid." Yeah, it's literally that tweet. But he goes on like a two page. Love it. And like, I kind of respect that because like he clearly sees us as a moral evil. But his because he's a biologist and he has some commitment. To the science of biology and it, it's truth he's like no i have to kind of say it's true like that it, yeah. it is possible so i respect that i also respect where he's not afraid to say i don't get kafka what is it about <laughs> and just make a fool of himself on the internet which is really funny i love uh, that when he debated that uh catholic priest and he was like if, if there was going to be a cause to the universe it'd have to be absolutely simple <laughs> And everyone laughed. He's like, "What's funny?" And it's just like you don't know what you're talking about. Um, yeah, it was, yeah, that um, was really funny. It was in Australia too, which kind of surprised yeah. me. But even the audience was kind of laughing, yeah. which surprised me. I was like, "Wait, is this audience like filled with like well catechized Catholics? What the fuck is going on?" I get it. it was, yeah, it was a, it's a weird. I was a weird one. I watched that entire episode, that entire like debate. It was a very uh, weird debate. Um, yeah, no, it's a. Uh, yeah, the new atheist. So I would love to. I would love to cover once we kind of get more into like Thomistic metaphysics. We're kind of doing more Thomistic episodes. I want to do a four part series where we do one book from each of the new atheists. Um, I think that'd be kind of a fun like four part series. Like this debunky. Like uh, we'll label it canceling the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we'll just we'll just go through each of the new one of the each of the new atheist books and set them down. So that'd be kind of a fun. Little that series. sounds good. But we should get back to the book. I do have one yes. quote before <laughs> that. And it's the, the opening paragraph of a science and subversion subchapter. So I'll just read this uh, short paragraph. The concepts of the the concept of the meme belongs with other subversive concepts: Marx's ideology, Freud's unconscious, Foucault's discourse, in being aimed at discrediting common prejudice. It seeks to expose illusions and to explain away our dreams. But it is itself a dream, a piece of ideology, accepted not for its truth, but for the illusory, illusory power that it confers on the one who conjures with it. It has produced some striking arguments, not least those by, given by Daniel Dennett in Breaking the Spell, but it possesses the very fault for which it purports to be a remedy. It is a spell with which the scientific, scientistic mind seeks to conjure away the things that pose a threat to it. That's the quote I had uh, lined up. I think it's a very well-written and interesting one. Okay. He then goes on to explain uh, – to sort of explain this on – you know, he gets Dawkins as an example. And he sort of does the same point that Phaser does where it's like Dawkins is using teleological language all <laughs> over the place, like especially in selfish yeah. gene. Uh, and he's just assigning it to like genes instead of humans. And it's like, okay, what if genes are a part of humans when like humans – clearly have teleology and the yeah. teleology or at least they have like secondhand teleology imparted by those genes which is to spread genes and so on yeah 
No, it's definitely um on that whole point about teleology. I have the I have the quote uh, uh here. And a cogent biological theory also has teleological idioms must be replaced with functional explanations. And what and that's what the recourse to game theory and similar devices is supposed to also why the player wants to win adopts a winning strategy. And that is a teleological explanation <laughs> of the behavior because a player yeah. wants to win. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> okay, you, you haven't solved anything really with game theory. Yeah. I don't know what it is about game theory, but every time it comes up, I'm just immediately disinterested. Like I, I don't really? know why. Yeah, the moment I saw it, someone the moment someone brings up game theory, maybe because I can't stand like the people who people I see bring it up, I just can't stand. So I never heard anyone bring it up who wasn't a, a guy I already didn't like. But I'm, I'm sure I could find someone to come a game theory where I can actually care. But every time I hear, I'm kind of just like, why? Why do I care about this? I don't know. Game why I don't- theory is cool. Uh, it, when it's like applied to strategy, like military strategy or strategy for mm. games, literally like tip, <laughs> like board games or like uh, chess or something like that. Um, it's also very useful when they're trying to describe like a, you know, something like a thriller or a detective going after a bad guy. It's used to great effect, or so I've heard in the Free Body Problem series, Remembrance of Earth's Past the series, where uh. It's a sort of a very hard sci-fi scientific scientific uh, <laughs> fiction novel that depicts an alien invasion on Earth and what would have to happen and also takes on the Fermi problem or a Fermi paradox of why we don't know alien life. So it sort of explores, okay, if very technologically aliens do, a, do try to invade Earth and we have some warning of this, what can be done with inferior technology? What are the things that can stop the invasion? What can halt it? What cannot? Uh, what are the mind games that we can play, so on and so forth. And so that's interesting in that respect, but when someone tries to explain something something else with it, it sort of kind of falls apart because you don't game theory is a formalization of obvious behavior, which is just reacting to incentives. That's mm-hmm. what game theory is. It's a formalization of of behavior um, in certain scenarios where you call the scenario a game and assign rewards, fictional rewards, such as, you know, this actor or the prisoner's dilemma. The prisoner values telling the authorities versus not telling uh, X amount and values not telling Y amount. Uh, And so, but, but if you introduce this other consideration, then it's X plus five or Y minus two. And then that might might change the result based on the prisoner's disposition, which determines the original X and Y values. So it's just a formalization of stuff that we all intuitively know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's fun to talk about because that's fun to talk about incentivized behavior. Yeah. I get, I get that. I guess I get that makes more sense then. Because whenever I hear it come up, like, I've like, seen because I heard it was like Brett Weinstein and Jonathan Hyde brought it up. <laughs> and I'm just like, nope, I'm out. <laughs> I don't know. Like, last tangent before we get back to like, I have one more, I have one more quote on like the biological side of things before we move on to the more philosophical side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we get to that, he references Jonathan Haidt in this book. And even when he brings, there's someone bringing up Jonathan Haidt, I kind of I zoned out for the entire paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> like it's like Jonathan Hyde zoned out, and I'm like, oh, I, I, I remember that I was listening to an audiobook. I just, I don't know what it is, but that guy's name is. I, I immediately just zone out. I'm like, I don't care. Something I don't know why, but he's just so like, his existence just bugs me. I haven't read any Hyde, so I might don't know. Yeah, Can't tell not, you anything about him. He's he's frustrating. <laughs> Um, anyway, back to the book. Nice, what else yeah. do you have in the first part? Because I have very little in the first part. We kind of already – you had laughter, which I had uh, underlying. I talk, we talked about science and subversion. That is, so, uh, it look, tries to subvert other common understandings of the world, which can't really be done away with. We nice. talked about verstehen, which I had outlined. We didn't use the word, but that is understanding. It's just a German word for mm-hmm. understanding that the phenomenologists, I think even Max Weber used it. I know Hoppe uses it, actually in uh, describing how economic actions have to take verstehen, that is the understanding of intentions, and that therefore that economics is based on based on verstehen, that is the understanding of intentional act, actions by rational agents, um, and so on. So it's a, verstehen is a very interesting and familiar word to me. But we already talked about that in intentions um, and yeah. how that's very much the intentionality. What we talk about intentionality belongs to, you have to undertake verstehen, understand laughter you have to perform a social to understand the social phenomenon 
that is laughter by getting trying to get into the minds of people, not just saying it's evolutionarily advantageous because that's nothing. Yeah. Uh, last quote I have is kind of not even something I think we, I don't know if we'll com- we might comment on a little bit, but not a whole lot. It's kind of just a summarizing quote from his chapter. And so I think it'd be a good way to kind of cap this off. Mm-hmm. In the hands of their populizers, the biological sciences are used to reduce human condition to some similar archetype. Um, archetype. On the on the assumption that what we are is what we once were, and that the truth about mankind is contained in our genealogy. The previous wave of pop genetics was called as so- sociobiology, came up with all deliberately disturbing conclusions, such as one, morality has no other demonstrable, demonstrable ultimate purpose than to keep human z- genetic material intact. Such conclusions depend upon using the language of common sense, while at the same time canceling the presuppositions on which common sense terms depend for their meaning. This trick can be played in almost any area of human thinking and never more effective when it is used to pour scorn on our moral and religious ideals. Yes, it is an excellent paragraph. It could almost come from a Christian. (laughs) Well, he was an Anglican, although not a very believing one, but he was a member of the Church of England and wrote a book defending it, which is very funny to me. (laughs) I am almost curious as to what it is. I I saw it on his website today, and I'm like, I I keep forgetting he's an Anglican. You know, he just seems like a guy who's like kind of – Small, but didn't go all the way into something, you know, but with other stuff. But then you forget he was an Anglican, you know. So let's go. He's a, uh... yeah. I think it's a great quote, and it kind of reminds me of um, not to you know, that's not, I'm not gonna bring it up. I'm not gonna make the comparison because I make that comparison a lot with this guy, so I'm actually not gonna make it. But um, okay, I would say the uh, keep it. Um, what's it out here? The yeah. Such conclusions depend upon using using language of common sense while at the same time canceling the presupposition of what common sense terms depend for their meaning. I like that point specifically. I think that's a very yes. great point. It reminds me of um the what's his, what's that guy's book? Um, Donald, I think it's Donald Hoffman. I may have that wrong. Uh, it's a it's a guy who wrote the Case Against Reality book where he said he did that a bunch is of Donald math. Hoffman. Yes, you talked yeah, about it a few of, times. Yeah, it reminds me of this guy where he's just like, well, listen, I did the math, and like, doesn't it make sense to evolutionarily speaking, your brain wouldn't show you things? And it's like, I guess. So, how, so therefore, the brain might not show you at all any of reality. It's like you just you made a very common sense argument for denying that we have common sense and common sense perception. Yeah, like, you're just... trying, you're presupposing reality to cancel out reality, <laughs> which is very funny. It's, it's very... it that is so that is like. <laughs> Because it's so obvious, right? Because you can at least, like, uh, you can sort of buy the idea that, you know, we can know nothing but our minds. Because prima facie, you're like, you can kind of look at it in an abstract and say, okay, I guess I can understand where you're coming from. Because, you know, you have immediate access to yourself because you are yourself. But I don't have immediate access to everything else. That is mediated. Um, so I can't really know them in themselves. I can only know myself, I guess. Context is even further, but you can't really know the noumenal self. You can only know the mm-hmm. phenomenal, phenomenal self, the phenomenal, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, but you can't even make a distinction there, which is interesting because the mind is also kind of a transcendental, op- transcendental object to Kant, um, which you can't really know in itself, but you can co- sort of know its phenomena. Uh, so that's interesting. But you can sort of buy that. But when the guy is literally like, say, we did this brain scan and therefore you can't know reality. It's like, motherfucker, you did a brain scan. You used a machine for that. that was, You're interacting um, with the material world. Mindcast point is like, you did a bunch of math to tell you you can't trust mass. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it sets a – the, the popularity of that book just kind of demonstrated to me how unphilosophically minded the, the cheap intellectuals of our time are. Yeah, it's you know, very like, – like Lex Friedman and Sam Harris both did like three hour-long interviews with this guy. And I'm like, if either one of you kind of saw it for a minute about the way he where he quotation marks proves this theory, you understand that he by if it was true, he would disprove the means of proving it. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's just it's such a nonsensical thing. I my, my I have a friend who loves that book and fully believes it. And I'm like, why? How? You have really um, strange friends, Caleb. I I yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's Central Florida, dude. <laughs> You know, okay, it's, that makes sense. You're accused. It's a weird place, you know. Um, I'm strange. I'm, I'm trained here. Everyone's everyone's strange. 
Um, but get the, before we go into kind of more philosophical, he kind of gets into more of an ethical and um, more. He kind of focuses for the first time of the book. Kind of talks about the uh, going against the um, biologists and the kind of the materialist or genetic mm-hmm. explanations of human nature. Before he goes, kind of goes into like the philosophical and more side of human nature, and he seems to make base a lot of his um, his his way of framing the conversation and going forward is in the uh, IU relation. Yes. So if you could explain the IU relation, I think that would be useful before we go forward and talking about the rest of the book. Just before that, I'll kind of summarize the first chapter, Humankind. If a very concluding, we've kind of talked about it indirectly and we've kind of already summarized it just with our conversation. But the main idea is that whatever it is, whether it's immaterial Perhaps it certainly is immaterial, but the mind um, and the relation of what a per- of what a human is, the human person belongs to the kind of persons that is taking into account its rationality, not merely its animal aspect. Um, and maybe he sort of uh, gives the argument that perhaps this is emergent out of the material biological aspect that so conditions uh, the animal so that it immaterial rational aspect emerges out of it he gives the analogy of a painting so that a painting really is just lines and blobs of different pigments of paint but if it's someone is painted there you see a face but well you can just say well it's just lines and blobs of painting and if you repeat this exact same line and blob in another canvas you'll end up with the same face and if you're not seeing the face you're looking at the painting wrong it's just obvious that it's there, but it's also not the lines and blobs, even if it is composed of that. It's a face. It's smiling or it's sad or it's crying. It has an expression. Um, so it emerges out of the material aspect of the paint on the canvas. And he sort of says that at the very least, we have to say that consciousness, self-consciousness, that the mind is at the very least emergent out of the paint and canvas that is the human body at the very least and he Mm. sort of goes through different biological explanations and sort of you know says that they're not enough they don't capture enough of what is a human human is a person you know if angels exist we would belong to the same kind as angels even if not biological type Mm. that um that painting analogy reminds me of um uh, um have you ever heard of neurological nihilism no, I have not. So, neurological nihilism is the idea that since nothing can be created or destroyed, everything that exists now, like this table, is not really a table. It's just a bunch of the parts from at the beginning, beginning from the beginning of the universe to now. All these parts exist, and things don't really undergo changes. They only conceptually undergo changes. So, the existence of this table, this table existed at the beginning of time. We didn't conceptually call it a table until we put it together and labeled it a table. And so it's an arbitrary labeling of saying. So there is nothing new, really. It's kind of everything is, and we conceptualize different names for things. Isn't um, that just the yeah. nominalism taken into an extreme? Yes, that's I kind guess. of what I, yeah. Taken in <laughs> together with, uh, what is it? I forget which law of physics it is, but the idea that energy cannot be created or destroyed. Yeah. <clears throat> and much. so it's just different arrangements of energy to which we give different names. But then they can't say the table existed because that would assume like something of a table exists. But if the table is just an arbitrary name that we give to an arbitrary formation, then the table doesn't exist. It didn't exist and doesn't even really exist now. It's just a name in our minds, if our minds even exist. Yeah, it was it was I heard heard it because it was brought up as an objection to the uh, Kalam cosmological argument. And so it was kind of a that sounds silly. It was kind of because William McQuaig was like. Well, you can believe that, but does it disprove that everything still had to come into existence? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is funny. <laughs> it was a, it was a good comment. It was a pretty good, interesting. It was a conversation. Um, but now we're gonna move into the philosophy. Uh, so, um, do you have any more comments on the genetic side before we move into the philosophy side? No, I do not. We can move on to chapter two. Okay, chapter two. Um, this might be split into a two-part episode because we're already running up on uh, forty minutes and one chapter two. Mm-hmm. Chapter um, true, two of like three or four, though. So, yeah, we're doing decent. Doing pretty good. Um, so I really don't have a whole lot of quotes in chapter two besides. Um, I have a few. Yeah, you <laughs> go ahead and go with some. No, no, no. You asked me to explain the IU relation. Oh, yeah, I'll do that. that. 
Yeah, do that. Uh, we'll read uh, maybe one and a half, maybe two paragraphs before, which are the beginning paragraphs of chapter two. Ever since Kant, it has been clear that I thoughts, that is, I the letter in quotation marks, thoughts, are fundamental to the life of the person, committing us to the belief in freedom and to the appeal to reason. Just as fundamental, Stephen Darwell has argued, are you thoughts? Thoughts about the person to whom I am accountable or to whom my reasons are addressed. The moral life depends on something that Darwell calls the second person standpoint, the standpoint of someone whose reasons and conduct are essentially addressed to others. In this chapter, I wish to develop this idea. When I give another person a reason for action, I am assuming that I have the standing, the authority, and the competence to do this. And I also confer standing, authority, and competence on the other. It is not that I draw the other's attention to some reason that exists independently in the nature of things. The moral dialogue is which is one in which I give reasons to you. And these reasons have weight for you precisely because that is what I am doing. Suppose you are standing on my foot. There is a reason for you to remove, remove your foot from mine, namely that this will relieve me from the pain. But there is a reason that I can also give to you that is quite another authority, namely that I don't want you to stand on my foot. This reason is addressed from me to you, and its force depends upon the shared assumption that you are accountable to me for your voluntary actions insofar as they affect me. You can actually see quite a lot of Hoppe in this. Mm -hmm. uh, Hoppe draws, in fact, his entire argument of the, what is it, the argumentation ethics depends on the I you encounter. Because if the IU encounter doesn't really happen, uh, argumentation ethics doesn't take place. As he says, like if you're on a on an island and you know you want a banana, and there's another and there's a gorilla on the island, and the gorilla also wants the same banana, the gorilla is a technical problem either to be avoided, killed with a firearm, or run away from. Um, it's not really another person in the sense that a person is rational. Uh, what is it? What's Boethius' definition? An individual substance of a rational nature. That's not really a person. It can't give you reasons. You can't give it reasons. You can just sort of interact with it. It is, as Hoppe put it, a technical problem. Animals are, for the most part, technical problems. Of course, because we are in an IU relationship with other people, and because we inhabit a moral world, our treatment of animals also, could, you know, forms habits, forms certain ideas of thought, um, and so treatment of animals kind of does become a moral problem, even if there's nothing we specifically owe to animals as a person, but we sort of owe to animals as sort of a responsibility of environment, just as destroying a forest for no reason is obviously prima facie blameworthy, destroying an animal for no reason is also prima facie blameworthy. But the IU encounter is basically this, I am self-conscious. I know that I think. I think that I think. I believe that I think. I can give reasons for my actions. Then I encounter a you. A you is another I. Is an I who also uh, has self-consciousness. But I am not that I. That I is other to me. So I am. So when to when an I you encounter happens, you are sort of you recognize the self-consciousness of the other person, the other person recognizes self-consciousness in you, and so you are no longer technical problems, but moral problems. That is, you have reasons to give to each other for your behavior. You are held responsible to each other. You can't really be held responsible to a horse if you mistreat him. You don't really have a responsibility to the horse. You might have a responsibility to the common society you live in because the common society does not like mistreatment of animals. But then again, that, you know goes back to an IU encounter. So what Scruton is trying to say is that sort of all morality sort of boils down to an IU encounter. I would say, I would extend this argument further, that all morality does in fact come to down to an IU encounter, even when you're alone, because there is still the IU encounter of God. Because That's God what is I was going to say. <laughs> I was going to go that direction. That's a, not as if, you know, I, was, I was listening to, I was, um, I was reading it and I was uh, explaining it. And I'm like, it just seems to me like a lot of people say that morality is only like an extroverted saying, where like morality doesn't exist when you're by yourself. You know, like integrity doesn't, integrity is not really a saying. Uh, morality is just an external saying. Um, but if you but if apply the IU encounter to, you know, you and 
God, because God's person, but then you oh, you can use the IU encounter to kind of stretch out kind of a good foundation for saying. So actually, I really don't have any issue with the IU encounter. Mm-hmm. I think it's a pretty good uh, foundation and pretty easy. It's like it's it's not it's, it's a I'm sure it gets, I'm sure it can get more complex if people try to push back against it, but in like common conversation, I imagine using that as an as an easy starting point to talk to somebody would be uh, pretty simple. Because if we're being scholastic about it, morality really boils down to natural law and final and teleology, Mm -hmm. final causality, being what you are. But then you can very easily make the argument that the IU encounter and the fulfillment of certain things in the IU encounter is very much part of our teleology. Um, You know, part of a rational essence is the IU encounter with the other and being held accountable and being responsible for certain other things instead of being something that emanates from pure reason as some as a Kantian would have it. It's not something you can say it's a part of intrinsically what we are because of our nature as human beings uh, created by God and so forth to have this encounter not only with other people but with God. And so our final causality is to sort of really enter into a proper IU encounter with God in heaven. That's mm. sort of, I, I mean, you can take Faze's argument that our life is uh, really about the next one and sort mm-hmm. of reframe it in terms of the IU encounter. So I don't think the IU encounter is invalid. It can sort of lead you astray at times, I think, yeah. morally, if you think purely in terms of it. But if you think phenomenolo- phenomenologically as what is happening in this situation when I am being held to account what am I thinking? What is actually happening between these two persons when there is a moral wrong done? It's, I think, a very good tool for descriptive purposes as to what is happening, as to what actual morality consists of. I would say that it consists of, you know, fulfilling your teleology um, and obeying natural the natural law. Yeah, but you, but a phenomenologist could make the argument that you know. All moral actions do actually, descriptively at least, consist of an IU encounter either of God or of other people. Mm. Well, I have a quote now. I think I'll read from the end. Kind of involves the IU encounter, mm-hmm. and I'm in a more section here. Um, Make sure I find the right one. Yeah, uh, here it is. Here it is. Several writers have drawn attention to the up the up. Objectification, up, up, objectif- objectification. God, I can't read tonight. So the objectification of the other and of women in particular, and the use of pornographic images. There is truth. There is truth in the complaints which have their roots in the Kantian intuition that these anim- that have that have animated our secular worldview since the Enlightenment. But I think that the complaints do not get to the heart of the matter. The real evil of porn lies not in its betrayal of other people as sexual objects. But in the radical decentering, on decentering, that is its effect on that it affects in the sexual feelings of the observer. Have the quote Thank here. Thank you. Thank you. So, my for some reason, I my uh, copy and paste of it. Like it, it wasn't. I I copied and pasted from the ebook, and so it kind of cut it up, and so I didn't oh, copy it okay. evenly. Mm-hmm. Um, let me just space that out so it kind of makes it easier to read. Here it is. Um. Um. Okay, yeah. The real evil porn lies not in the portrayal of other people as sexual objects, but in the radical decentering that that it affects in the sexual feelings of the observer. It prizes sexual excitement free from the IU relation and directs to a nameless sense of mutual arousal. And what's arousal too is depersonalized, as though it was a physical condition, not an expression of the self. This decentering of arousal and desire makes them into things that happen to me occurring under the harsh light of voyeuristic torts of a voyeuristic torts instead of being part of what i am to you and you are to me in the moment of intimacy mm-hmm. um i think i think it's correct i think it's a great way of a kind of again a very nice description of uh of the way some of the, some of the problems with pornography you know it's a very yeah, and you can, beautiful description and you can sort of see how the iu encounter actually meshes really well of teleology because mm-hmm. a part of the teleology of sex is not only the production of children uh but is in also in fact uh what would would be um you know a sharing of an intimate moment a growing closer of two people uh pair bonding and the lingo of evolutionary biology mm-hmm. then this pair bonding does consist in an iu encounter of two people in a reflection of mutual arousal which leads to other things 
And then finally, the final causality of that is in uh, the production of children. But yeah. you can sort of see how this already, the fact that it doesn't even fulfill the basic requirements of the IU of the IU encounter means that it cannot fulfill the requirements of uh, the production of children and the rearing of children. Because so maybe you can produce children if you rape someone, but you certainly aren't rearing them or taking care of them or raising them if you just rape someone yeah. and leave. That's not happening. Yeah. No, it's definitely um, – I, I, I mean, the more I think about it and the more I read the stuff when it kind of uses the IU relation, the more I'm kind of like I, – I appreciate the uh, – uh, how do I put this? It's, it's a it is a easy way to begin a conversation with someone about morality. It does not require uh, using language or something that kind of gets them to see, see it in a religious framework. I mean, at least when I talk to ACS, if I try to speak up anything on the moral issue – they immediately kind of assume it's a religious thing. But I see, like, you can use the IU relationship, you might even as an atheist or a secular standpoint, to kind of make the same point. Uh, and you can even lead; it can be a good lead into, you know, other to a better description of, you know, natural law morality. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's going to. I think it's going to. I'm going to try to definitely incorporate more into my uh, conversations I have with atheists nowadays. I think it's yeah. a very good point. I think Scruton's description of the IU encounter is a very good intro to what phenomenology really kind of is supposed to do. Because you can only really go so far with it, and unless you're like a poet, basically, like Heidegger, um, you sort of find its limits fairly quickly. If you're someone like St. Edith Stein, you get to Thomism <laughs> for phenomenology. In fact, she yeah. was, you know, very adamant that you could get from phenomenology to arrive at all the idea to ideas of St. Thomas, and from St. Thomas get to phenomenology. She was very adamant that you could go both ways, and you would arrive at the other. Is that in a book she wrote, or is that? Kind of uh, I think finite and eternal being does that. Um, act and potency, finite and eternal being, and there's like a third one. Uh, she wrote a trilogy towards the end of her life, mainly focusing on these two. We also, she also has a book uh, called Saint Thomas and Heidegger, or something like that, um, where she's really comparing both of the thought, uh, the thoughts of her teacher Heidegger mm -hmm. and Saint Thomas, um, her let's say, uh, how do I put this, her posthumous teacher. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very i haven't read that one i'm i've read like 50 pages of finite and eternal being which is so far mostly her ranting about uh the fact that she can't write in latin and be understood <laughs> even though she can speak latin <laughs> that's most of what i remember um she has a very interesting like on page two one and two she solves problems of act and potency which i'm sure were already solved solved by saint thomas but she put it in a way that i didn't realize could already mm -hmm. be done uh, such as act and potency relating to God, uh, that if God hasn't already done this, then how can that be? Then how can we say that's potency because that's pure act? And so she sort of does a linguistic analysis that kind of solves problems of act and potency relating to God. She's a very interesting thinker, yeah. uh, but I would not recommend that starting off because that's a very heavy, dense, like 600 page philosophy book. <laughs> read something more spiritual from her, read her spiritual writings or um, The Science of the Cross which is her book on St. John of the Cross. It's her yes. biography and her um, explanation of his philosophy, basically. Mm. No, that's, a book, that's, that's, that's a book that's been on my list for quite a while now. Science um, of the Cross? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have it on Kindle, yeah. I think. Yeah. It's on my list. I'm, finally, I'm finally knocking off a few books that have been on my list for a while, like this one, for example. And so once I, once I, probably get my, my, once my list is half empty, I'll, I can then fill it back up again. And so that'll definitely be one of the books I pick up soon. Um, but we have we probably have time for one more quote. Uh, do you have one you want to use? You want to go with one? Uh, we can go with intentionality of pleasure, or we can talk about the first person case. That is how self, how he makes the argument that self sort of arise from a from a community of other people. Let's go with that one. Sure. Uh, so there's two arguments. There's Hegel's argument of recognition and Wittgenstein's first-person case. I'll read both because they're one paragraph mm -hmm. each. So first we have Wittgenstein's argument, the first-person case, which he calls the argument from language. The argument from language tells us that first-person declarations exhibit a special kind of privilege. If I am in pain, then I don't have to find out that I am in pain, and I know that I am in pain on no basis. Not to use the words I am in pain in this way is to misunderstand their meaning. In particular, it is to misunderstand the word I. This word get its gets its sense from the rule that truthfulness and truth coincide. A speaker who does not obey this rule would be using the term I to mean he or she. 
the speaker would show that he or she had not grasped the, the grammar of the first-person case. First-person awareness arises with the mastery of a public language and therefore with the recognition that others are using the word I as I do in order to express what they think and feel directly. So this is the private language argument, basically. This is a very truncated form of the private language argument, which is essentially the idea that um, it BT first it BTFO solipsism. Um, <laughs> secondly, it's sort of the idea that uh, first you can't – every sort of thought is – kind of must be publicly accessible to some degree because you can't really reach your innermost thoughts. So I don't know. So, you know, someone says a solipsist can begin with, I don't know what you mean when you say sad because I'm not in your mind. So I don't know the experience of sad that you are describing. I only know intimately my own experience of sadness. And yet we all seem to, and yet you, the solipsist who begins this argument, but you can give, then go on to say, therefore, I don't really know what goes on in your mind. Maybe nothing goes on in your mind. Maybe you're a, a flesh puppet, a meat computer. Um, and then, but that argument falls apart because where did this motherfucker get the notion of I, <laughs> of I am sad? Well, he got it from other people teaching him what it means, when it means, and he sort of gets it from observing other people. Because maybe he as a child said, I'm sad because he misunderstood the word sad to mean happy. And then his parents corrected him. So this public, so he, Wittgenstein first develops the thought that no language can be private because no language, uh, every language in principle at least can be used by a community of language speakers to describe their thoughts and feelings. It can never be so that uh, only I understand this language because only I have these thoughts and feelings. That can never happen. His argument is more subtle than I remember, but it's an interesting argument worth checking out. Yeah. Um, and so this idea of I really only arises in a community of other people who can say I. That is, the idea of I only arises in an I-U encounter with other rational beings, or else you're living in a world of perceptions such as hungry, eat food, not hungry, hunting, so on, so forth. You live in a world of pure perception and action, instinct and urge, unless you encounter the eye. Now, we can maybe dispute this, but it's at least an interesting argument that he presents. Hegel's argument is similar, though presented in a very different, different idiom. In this state of nature, motivated only by my desires and needs, I am conscious, but without the sense of self. Through the encounter with the other, which begins in a life and death struggle for survival, I am forced to recognize that I, too, am, am other to the one who is other to me. Hegel spells out, in poetic steps, the gradual emergence from this encounter of the moment of mutual recognition in which one comes to know oneself as a free self-consciousness by recognizing the free self-consciousness that stands over and against one. Self and other come into consciousness in a single act of recognition, which bestows on me the ability to know myself in the first person at the same time as demanding that I recognize the first person being of you. So this is very poetic, but it's essentially making the argument that um, I can't really know I'm self-conscious. I can only know I'm conscious unless I encounter another person who is self-conscious because um, it's the – it's the, you know – if, if if you're alone in a dark room and you there's no wind, there's no nothing, you're floating in space, um, you can't really feel anything on your body. And let's say that you can't really feel uh, the inner workings of your body. How do you know you have a body and aren't just like a mind floating in a dark room? Because there's no interaction with your body. You need someone or something outside, like a breeze or whatever, to come in and touch your body, your skin, to say, oh, I have skin in this, this, and that place. To know those things. You don't instinctively know them. You have them, but you don't really know it until you encounter something else, which interacts with it in a specific way to trigger a reaction. And the way we know our self-consciousness, according to Hegel, is in the eye you encounter. I'm not completely sure I buy this, but I think it's a somewhat plausible description of how um, proper self-consciousness arises, that is self-consciousness as a rational agent in a community of irrational agents i'm not sure i would agree with the first steps but it's or at least tentatively tentatively i'm not sure i would agree to all of it but it's an interesting argument i find wittgenstein's more plausible his public yeah. la public language private language 
but Hegel's is more poetic and interesting in this encounter of both that forces a mutual recognition. He's certainly right that an encounter with the other that you realize has self-consciousness does force you to recognize that the other has self-consciousness, and you can't really take that back. Even someone who calls himself a solipsist won't behave as a psychopath, even if he says it's only because he's afraid of going to jail or whatever. Um, two, two points. One, yeah, I agree. The Wittgenstein one definitely is much more interesting and much more – it seems much more on his face plausible. You know, It's much more much, analytical and less poetic, yeah. yes. Um, and I've got to say I, I'm a – what was it? I posted a poem maybe a while ago, and I asked, what, what is the beginning of philosophy? Was it um, like – and one of my options I put was like, is language the beginning of philosophy? Um, um, and I, I, you know, people had to argue answer this, but I always, I always do like the the um, people who make arguments based kind of on like you know, like the IU relation or on like or secret language or what was it? Uh, you had one. He was like, um, I think it was Peter Geats. You, you made an article on that one. It was on by whenever you use the words good, you or bad, you are implicitly saying this thing's about good and bad. Yeah, you're implicitly sort of held, holding it to a standard that is kind of teleological. Yeah. Uh, I, I at the know. very least functional. Uh, there's yeah. no way to assess – logically, there's no way to assess some if something is good or bad without relating it to some specific function at the very least. And that sort of implies an inherent teleology of things, just logically speaking. Yeah. Now, I'm a big fan of those kind of like language-based uh, – Yeah, you'll like Wittgenstein then. And his books aren't big. Yes, two famous books. You don't need to read the first. You only – the two books you better recommend, and they're very short, are um, – what's the first one? The Philosophical Investigations, written towards the end of his life. And then his other book that's mostly just notes he had, which he had when he was reading St. Cardinal John Newman mostly because St. Cardinal John Newman is also very much a linguistic analyst and an analyst of grammar. So he's very much that sort of philosopher. Um, and by the way, at that time, he was not a saint. He was just someone who was very famous in philosophy. And so Wittgenstein was reading him, and he was talking to a local Catholic priest about it. Um, and so he wrote On Certainty, which is sort of a, his final work. It's very short from what I remember. I haven't read it, but it is uh, apparently very, very good. And there's an interesting – I've watched some lectures on it. There's some interesting arguments about justification of religious belief that I think we can take, such as their religious beliefs or hinge beliefs, that uh, to doubt, uh, for example, he doesn't make this argument, but I could use what he's writing on certainty to make the argument that um, to doubt that pure actus, uh, actus purus exists, that is pure act exists, is to very much doubt the very um, legibility of a rational investigation. So you can't really have a poor, properly rational investigation into anything if Actus Brutus doesn't exist because then nothing really exists because nothing is grounded in something. Not, because everything must be grounded in something, and if Actus Brutus doesn't exist, then nothing really exists. And, you're, and you don't exist. And so you're sort of missing the point of a rational investigation, which sort of has to take certain things as given. These are hinge beliefs. Therefore, it's sort of, you know, it's silly to investigate whether you have two hands, unless like you lost one in the war and you're you know, hallucinating or whatever. Mm-hmm. But for most people, it's silly. It's like, of course I have two hands. This is a hinge belief. I just have to take this for granted because if I don't take for granted, no rational investigation into anything can exist or can even mm-hmm. begin. And Wittgenstein makes the argument that, you know, he wouldn't apply this to Actus Putas, I think, but he does apply it to certain religious beliefs. And he does say that, you know, we shouldn't like, you know, be sad over this. It's just that you know, we now understand what rational investigation is. So get on with things that can be rationally investigated and stop moping over the fact <laughs> that some things can't. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to read into those because it definitely seemed to kind of right up my alley of uh, things I'm interested in. Second, on, on the point of solipsism, and you said the uh, even the most deranged solipsists won't, you know, act like a crazy person, even if they claim it's for fear of Zayl. Reminds me of the, um, I probably mentioned it before on the podcast, but I'll bring it up again because new listeners might hear it. <clears throat> Zika Chesterton, I think it was his book, Heretics. Uh, no, it was in his book uh, on St. Thomas Aquinas. He accounted about as a professor somewhere in England who wrote a uh, like an article or a newspaper saying, why aren't more philosophers uh, and academics solipsists? It's such a <laughs> rational, logical position. Now we said, all oh, this kind of accepts that we are all to be solipsists. And Chesterton wrote him a letter saying, my good sir, you are a solipsist, you are aware. You are the only philosopher alive right now. You are the only <laughs> philosopher that exists right now. <laughs> Which is just, 
Um, I love, I love, to, I love, I love when someone has like a very clever kind of like, I'm not engaging you, I'm agreeing with you, and by agreeing with you, you're still wrong. And by you know, agreeing I'm, with you, I'm showing you're wrong. It's, yes, I, love, I, love I really do things. like Chesterton. Yeah. Um, he sort of makes everyone look silly, which yes. is, uh, you know, he sort of shows how insane everyone is, really is, and he's great for that. Oh, yeah. Well, we've gone for an hour and a half. Uh, let's wrap this up. Bodes, uh, final thoughts on the book, so final thoughts on Scruton, and then go ahead and give your plugs. So final thoughts, at least on the book thus far. We'll probably record a part two, right? Where yeah, probably. yeah, probably. Okay. So uh, final thoughts on the book thus far. Uh, there's very interesting arguments here. Uh, he raises a lot of good points. In my opinion, he doesn't go far enough into um, what – you know, what we would regard as a more Aristotelian conception of the human. But he does raise very good objections. For me, to have an, a, a more contemporary standpoint on mm -hmm. the purely materialistic biological explanation of people, because that is, again, prima facie, not what's going on. Um, and so that's interesting to me. Uh, so those are my thoughts on the book. Uh, what else? I guess plugs. I'm Bolikos Behemoth on Twitter, um, exactly as you see written here. Um, I have finally finished my uh, article on marriage and hyperreality. It'll eventually go up when astrotomism is back up. Um, I may add a few flourishes to it and add a, a chapter discussing a certain song by a certain artist known as Jamiroquai uh, to the end, which I, th which I think is highly entertaining, at least to myself. I hope readers will find it interesting at the very least. But yeah, that's about uh, all from me. Okay. Well, thanks for coming on, man. Happy to have you on as always. Um, everyone, just like you like, comment, listen, uh, subscribe, all that good stuff. Um, if you enjoy this cool book, let me know. We're going to finish this book with a part two. And if it uh, gets good reception and we both enjoy it, I want to, we decided to cover more screwing. We would, I, I would love to cover Soul of the Word with uh, Grant because I think you'll like that. I know we, on, we have on the books, uh, you, Has, and Grant. For uh, I drink before I am, and we're all gonna get, do some wine drinking on that one. So that'll be a lot of fun. Um, I definitely want to get. I want to. I think Spoon's like a, a really good contemporary uh, philosopher who's who's who needs to be. And I think how to put this. He's not. He's he has he's a, he's a guy you can read that we can then have agree with him and then kind of build off of him to make more optimistic Aristotelian points, kind of like we did today. And so mm -hmm. I think he's a kind of a good guy to cover because if we get to cover someone that's outside our circles and have a good conversation rather than when you read like – say we try to cover Ed Fazer's metaphysics. We're just going to be reading it and then going, yep, yep, yep. Yeah, we're just going to explain and summarize the argument basically. Yeah, but here we actually get to engage it more. I think that makes it more of a uh, fun uh, episode to record. So I want to cover more scrutiny going forward. But if the audience doesn't like it, then, you know – they're stupid because the audience is dumb. Of course, always. Yeah, oh, the audience is always dumb. You know, I, I, Settler, Settler's lament is right. The audience is dumb, and he, he, it's never his fault for being late. True. Um, so true of Settler. Yes. Yeah, fellow so Catholic. Fellow Canadian, <laughs> Canadian <laughs> Catholic. That, that guy, I love that guy. He he was on once, and it was an absolute blast. I should um, watch that stream. I yeah. watched that. I, I, would, I said, I said, I said, I said um, so you're kind of part of the neo-reactionary uh, space. Was, I've never used that term because it just seems kind of autistic. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just so like, I, I love this guy. He's, he's great. But anyway, uh, like, comment, share, subscribe. A uh, lot of great stuff coming out. Uh, yeah. Thanks for listening. Have a good night.